0: Computers
1: online. Archiving 44 k Initiate
2: sequence.
1: T minus 30 seconds. Server
2: connection confirmed. T minus 25 seconds.
1: Live phase 21 and 20k. T minus 20 seconds. All
2: lines are out. T minus 15 seconds. Satellite complete. T-minus 10
0: seconds.
1: Right
2: there, complete. That right up, right there, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Welcome to Black Op Radio, the
0: voice of political conspiracy research.
2: You're listening to Black Op Radio, the show NSA doesn't want you to hear. Now here is your host, Leno Sanek.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. This is your host, Leno Sanek. Today we are speaking to author John Perkins. Hello, Mr. Perkins.
2: Hi, Len. Uh, yeah, I like I like to go by John. So.
0: Okay, right. But I just wanted to give you a little formal respect <laughs> right off the top. It's a privilege to speak to you because your book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman is uh, almost unparalleled. There's a few people that you read a book. I think you mentioned one by Gerard Colby, and I've always looked up to Fletcher Prouty, and you every now and then someone just tells you the truth and it's uncomfortable. and you have to put the book down and think about it, then you pick it up and you read it again and and you and you have to start analyzing you know what if, for instance, in your this is your third edition. At the end of your book, you have, um, well, not the discussion guide, but you kind of have a conclusion here of, of the roles that we have to do and things we have to do, and <laughs> I find myself, you know, thinking, oh, I'm, I'm not doing enough, am I? I'm not, I'm barely doing anything, and uh, so you, 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 you put it to the reader to say, you know, here's what's wrong, and are you going to do anything? But yeah. look at, just off the top, and just very, very brief, because I think a lot of people Know who you are, or know you from the first book. Just give me a brief background of um, yourself and and getting into writing "Confessions of an Economic Hitman."
2: Yeah, so you know, I, I was an economic hitman. My my official title was chief economist at a major Boston-based consulting firm. Um, but you know, my my job uh, was really to identify countries with corporate with uh, resources that corporations wanted, like oil or other minerals. Uh, arrange a huge loan to, to that country uh, through the World Bank or one of its sister organizations, but the money was had to be used to hire our corporations, US corporations, to build big infrastructure projects in that country, like power plants and industrial parks and highways, things that brought big profits to our corporations that built them, and also helped a few wealthy families in those countries, uh, the ones who owned the industries and the businesses that benefited from much better infrastructure. But the majority of the people were hurt, but in this process, because money was diverted from education, healthcare, and other social services to pay the interest on the loans, and in the end, the principal could never be repaid. So we'd go back in in the guise of the IMF or one of the other institutions and say, "Hey, listen, you know, you can't pay your loans, so." give us your collateral your oil that would be the collateral on the loan that 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 had been signed years before uh let us let our companies take your oil or or whatever other mineral resources copper gold today it's lithium and cobalt and the things that go for a green economy and and let our companies uh, uh, take these at 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 low prices Uh, don't they don't have to pay very much and with very few if any environmental and social regulations so it was really the job, of the Economic Hitman strategy was to do everything we could to bring more resources to the United States uh, and help our own corporations. Uh, and that was the, the premise of the first book. And so there's, it's really a trilogy of books. The second in the trilogy, which came out in 2016, talked about how every corporation had now every big major multinational corporation had its own version of Economic Hitman, pushing to help that corporation, be it. Uh, Nike or, or Walmart or Exxon or or whatever corporation to help that corporation get better deals in the United States and, and all over the world. And then the third wave comes along, which is why I wrote this third book in the in the uh, trilogy. Uh, and the third wave is China's economic hitman. And beginning around 2012, 2013, when President Xi gained power in China, the decision was made to learn from the successes and mistakes that, that our economic hitmen had made and send China's economic hitmen out to dominate resources and, and basically dominate economic influence around the world. They've been extremely successful at doing this, extremely successful. And today they're the number one investor in uh, every and countries on every continent. Uh, in the last couple of years, they've given loans to lower income countries that are equal to all the rest of the world's loans, including the United States combined. They've done a very efficient job of winning these countries over. and But the theme of this book, as you touched upon, Len, is that in the end, this economic hitman strategy, whether it's implemented by the US or China or someone else, is creating an economic system that's, that's failing us, a death economy that's consuming and, and uh, polluting itself into extinction. We need to turn that around and create a life economy that will bring us back from the precipice of of essentially self destruction as a species.
0: Now, with this third edition, you go into the the idea that uh, you know someone just was to type in and search the, the new Silk Road Belt and Road Initiative and the uh, the high speed rail travel that China is putting out through their country. They're just going forward. It's ironic. I'm just living here in Canada when you when you hear about all these. Bridge disasters, train disasters in America. That just their infrastructure is just falling apart. And yet, the other side of the coin with China is they're trying to do. They're just improving. They're going forward. They're looking to the future. And um, you can't really say that about U.S. And then you, you just mentioned about the amount of money spent. It's it's mind-boggling when I read your book to to hear and read the amounts of money that China is investing. I think where is it? Middle East and North Africa you know 177 billion they are investing and yet the u.s is sending like 100 billion to ukraine for war and military and yeah. the other side is investing going forward your book really illuminates all three the failings of how like you say you loan these uh you loan the money and then some of the guys take off with some of the money and there's this corruption and then the dam never gets fully built or the, the roads or the electrical. I guess that's what in, in the early days was um, bringing electricity to some of these other countries. And the projects don't get finished and then they're forever in debt. And yet China is investing in things. You know, now all you hear was that, well, America maybe wants to go to war with China now over Taiwan, right?
2: Mm. So after 9-11, when the United States went into Afghanistan and then Iraq... China was very careful not to get involved. And w- essentially in the United States, we, we pretty much forget about the rest of the, the global south, Africa, Latin America, parts of Asia. And, and we forgot about them pretty much because uh, we were investing all of our efforts, energy and money into these wars. And China then goes into the global south, stays out of the Middle East, goes into the global south and makes huge inroads, as you've pointed out and they have an amazing story to tell you know they can say, they can say that for 30 years they had economic growth of about 10% a year and and they brought more than 700 million people out of dire poverty nobody else has ever done that china did it and they can also say yes they, they have this tremendous marketing tool which is the belt and road initiative the new silk road that they say well when when they build these ports in latin america they're not you know so they they, they are connecting latin america with africa and Asia and, the, and Europe and the Middle East. So, you know, the, 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 the belt the, 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 the belt part is the uh, on-land systems, like you mentioned, trains and highways that connect China to Africa and everything in between. And the road part are the, are the, are the, are the roadways and the oceans, which is connecting countries in Latin America and the island nations with all these countries. So it's a very, very appealing sales tool. And now, of course, uh, what we did in Afghanistan and Iraq, we're, we're kind of doing in, in, in Ukraine. It's a very, very different issue. I don't, the similarities are very different, but the, what's common is that we're devoting tremendous numbers of resources, we in the United States, to Ukraine and pretty much ignoring the rest of the world. China is staying out of Ukraine. They're, they're kind of playing on the edges, you know, are they supporting Russia? Yes, kind of, but they're not really getting involved but they're deep they're continuing to be deeply involved in countries with resources that they very much want to have like the lithium and in what's called the, the lithium triangle which is uh, bolivia uh, argentina and chile and also throughout africa so they're they're playing a very wise game in many respects and they're taking advantage of the us's uh, involvement in wars around the world and and also you know the what they see as a dysfunctional government system in the United States.
0: I, I have to agree with that. I mean, I just can't believe that between in all of America, Joe Biden and Donald Trump are the best you have to offer. That that I mean, the other day somebody just said if Joe Rogan was to run, people would vote for him. You know, but it, it's just this the the poverty of it. You know, yeah. I just I can't believe that that's the best. And but well, we don't have to get into that. But I do have a checklist of things I want to ask you about. Just briefly, since you did mention 9/11, do you have any opinion on 9/11 and the attack? Do you think I'm just going to ask you? Do you have any opinion on the, you know, the
2: actual attack? Other than it it changed the world, (laughs) you know, you know, it's it's hard to believe all of the official story, but I I don't know another story that I find more credible. Uh, Okay,
0: fair enough. Right. Just because it is it is, uh, you go. You've seen some of these examples. Of you know self-inflicted wound to say all oh, these guys just you know now we've got to go into Afghanistan, and yeah. you, and then you go well I thought the hijackers were from Saudi Arabia, yeah. Bin Laden nineteen of them right but yeah. oh okay, or well, it was Iraq first? It yeah. was it was Iraq and then Afghanistan, and when you you know you study Vietnam you think well that's twenty years of of what a waste. And then the same thing in Iraq.
2: Yeah, and, and you know, it, it, actually we, we went into Afghanistan a little bit first and then Iraq and then back to Afghanistan. There's been this fluctuation, but I think it's fair to say that although the world and, and most people in the United States look at that we lost the war in Vietnam and we lost the war in Afghanistan, um, the people who own or profit off of the military industries, they gained. So, you know, that's where a lot of this politics comes in is the war mongering and you know it's, it's a historical th- thing that t- throughout uh, written history we know that those who promote war uh and can profit off it there's a tremendous profiteering and that's been going on and it's going on with the war in ukraine too there's a lot of people making a lot of money off that war
0: right okay well that's another thing on my checklist here i i've there's been some bitter arguments about me talking about ukraine i said listen when i when i talk about vietnam there's north and south vietnam and you didn't bat an eye when i'm investigating it now i'm going to say there's western ukraine and eastern ukraine and there's a civil war going on and if you start around 2014 you start investigating it oh you're you're a puppet or what you know what i mean right so my question though for you though is You've heard of BlackRock, and it seems to me that somehow this country is going to be wrecked. There's already deals made when there's no one really left to defend Ukraine, and it just kind of falls apart. These corporations have already kind of spoken for resources. Do you have any opinion on that?
2: You know, I've tried very hard, Len, to get information on how much of U.S. aid to uh, Iraq is in the form of debt. Uh, loans to iraq and how much of it is in the form of grants which are not which nobody needs to which is no collateral for nobody needs to repay i can't find that information i I don't have any idea what i do know is that the the money however it's channeled is going into making a lot of big profits for the industries that that make drones and to make all sorts of military equipment right i'm
0: talking about ukraine though right now right Yeah, me too. Oh, okay, sure. I thought you said Iraq. But anyway, Ukraine, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's the problem. That when Congress, they all are investing in Lockheed and et cetera. And then uh, Pelosi's husband's been, you know, just investing in everything. And then they vote to make more weapons. Then they all get rich and they don't really care what's going on over there. I mean, it, it just seems absurd. And yet everyone has to stand with Ukraine, you know, regardless of what. What's really going on there? And that's the question. You know, you think, well, is this another 20-year skirmish that's going to end up in, in complete disaster? But in the meantime, like you mentioned, China's going full steam ahead. If you yeah. look for a map of this, uh, the new Silk Road, and, and anybody who doesn't know that, the Silk Road was an old trading route, right? And so that's what uh, China's making, inroads in distribution and
2: transportation. Right, and, you know, I, I think what the, the most important thing to keep bringing home here is that really the United States and China are in a race. It's a competition to dominate the world. And, and it's a race to disaster. Um, it's, it's creating this death economy. And part of the death economy involves war. It, it, but it's based on maximizing short-term profits and short-term materialistic consumption, regardless of the social and environmental costs. And both the United States and China were involved in this. Russia and the Soviet Union were definitely involved, in it. much of the world is. It's created this economic system that's polluting and, and, uh, and consuming itself into extinction, depleting in the short term the resources it needs for the long term. It's not working. It's creating climate change. It's creating income inequality and species extinctions. Those are all problems, but they're not the problem. They're all symptoms of a problem of an economic system that's based on short-term materialistic gain. We need to turn that around. We need to recognize that China and the United States and Russia and everybody else can disagree on many different aspects of what it means to be successful humans on this planet, but we all can agree that nobody survives on a dead planet, Uh, and that's what we're in the process of creating so one of the themes, the main theme, I would say, of, of my book, I mean, it goes into you know what Chinese economic hitmen do, what America's economic hitmen do, et cetera. It goes into stories around that, but the main theme is that all of this is taking us down a road that we don't want to continue to go on, and we need to create a life economy that pays people to. Mine all the ocean, all, all, mine all the plastic that's out in the oceans, and and clean up uh, the you know pollution, other forms of pollution. Pay people to clean up pollution, to regenerate destroyed environments, to regenerate coral reefs if we want to talk about the oceans, and forests and so on and so forth, to recycle and to create technologies that don't require fossil fuels and don't require digging up the earth to, to get more minerals. Uh, technologies like solar and wind, but things that we haven't even thought of yet that that can come in. You know, we can create an economic system that'll help people uh, that'll pay people to do things that enhance life in the long term for our children and grandchildren, and, and the children and grandchildren of all species.
0: Yeah, in your in the new book, the the part seven and then the conclusions, you go into to all this even. Uh, uh, were you going to it? So first of all, is the book is released now. Is it ready for the public?
2: Where can we get one? Yeah, well, it, it, you can get it at any bookstore or online vendor. Uh, it, I mean, one easy way is just to go to my website, johnperkins.org, and there's information there about how you can order from these different – I don't sell the book myself, but it gives all the information. And no, links.
0: I just want to make sure that people know that the book is available, and this is something you should get. Because not only does it go back from the the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, but it talks about you know what's happening today and trying to get people motivated. I think to realize how how uh, fragile the situation is. I mean that's when I think about Russia and and U.S. and just pumping in all that money. If if somebody uh, makes a mistake and they start, they start launching nuclear weapons, you, you can not worry about global warming. I mean it's. Uh, it's a, it's a nightmare disaster that somehow nobody wants to bring up.
2: Yeah, and, and it's a diversion from dealing with global warming, frankly, and which, is, which is a huge problem. There's, there's no question that we're, we're in a very serious evolution in human life. And we're, but these crises also offer these tremendous opportunities. You know, the, at, in the book, I, and I, I go into some detail about what all of us as individuals can do and it really starts by recognizing that it's really corporations, multinational corporations that are calling the shots in the United States, in China, and in many other places, including to some degree, Russia. Um, and uh, we all are we are victims, but we're also collaborators. We, we, we're all consumers and th- we buy things from these corporations. Uh, some of us invest in them and, and work for them or manage them or even own them. And so we have a lot of power to turn this around. And it's really a matter of changing this goal of of short-term maximization of, of uh, materialistic gains to long-term benefits for all life. And you know, at the in the book I I, I outline in addition to specific things that many of us already know that we can do about how we shop and 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 letting the people we buy from know why we're buying from them or why we're not buying from them. And with social media, it's so easy to get into consumer campaigns where we really let companies know, hey, I love your products, but I'm not buying them until you pay your workers in Indonesia a fair wage or whatever. It, that's It's quite easy to, today to get deeply involved in these, and, and those things are important. But I also ask people to ask themselves the question, what do I most want to do for the rest of my life? What will bring me the greatest satisfaction? That's the first question. The second question is, how do I do this in a way that helps in the transition from a death economy to a life economy, and then there's there's a follow-up, another three questions that go into more detail. But you know, as an example, Len, when when I ask myself that question, you know, what do I most want to do for the rest of my life? I want to write. I love to write. You know, I'm I'm fortunate. I don't I don't ever have to retire from writing until I just get tired of it. And I'm I'm not tired of it yet. And the second question, and I have a friend who's a carpenter who's kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum and he likes to work with his hands in wood. So the second question, how do I do this in a way that helps to transform the death economy to a life economy? I would say, I'm gonna write about that. I'm gonna write books that I hope will inspire people to get involved. My carpenter friend will say, I'm gonna you know, use carpentry. I'm just gonna use uh, sustainable materials and let my clients know that when we use sustainable materials we're investing in the future. It may cost a little bit more, but it's not actually a cost. It's an investment. And, you know, every person listening, every person who reads the book, whether you're a, a carpenter or a writer or a plumber or a radio host or a teacher or a parent or whatever you are, uh, you can apply these these questions. What do I most want to do for the rest of my life and how can I do this in a way that'll uh, transform the death economy to a life economy? And it, it can be simple, sending an email, once a week, (laughs) to a bunch of people, uh, talking to your kids, or it can be done on a very large scale, uh, a global scale or a city scale. There's, There's so many ways to be involved. But we all need to be involved and recognize that, yes, we're victims, and yes, we're collaborators, and yes, we have the power to change this.
0: Yeah, I mean, that part of the book really got to me, as I mentioned off the top. It's not that I felt guilty, but I thought, I could be doing more and I'm going to have to reread that and then just see, because you have another example, you give examples of how, of how to write a letter, how to, how to voice your concerns to corporations. So that, that was a whole worthwhile section, right? Other than your book is a real history lesson mm-hmm. of, what, of the failings, I think of, of uh, Western banking and influence, as opposed to not that I'm. You know, waving a flag for China or anything like that, but they seem to be, you know, learn. They seem to learn the lessons of what not to do, not to go in there uh, like the early uh, explorers and just uh, try to conquer a village, come over and offer them something, and then uh, you have peaceful trade.
2: You know, it's it's interesting. I, I, I taught at an MBA program in China, which is one of the top in the world, and uh, most of the students were uh, have been hand selected to be the China's leaders of the future. And they kept pointing out that they've lived through terrible, terrible pollution. They've, they've created an economic miracle—you know, tremendous economic growth, brought a lot of people out of poverty—but it's come at a horrible price. They would say, uh, socially and environmentally, they've had to, you know, w- wear oxygen masks sometimes when they walk down their city streets. They've had terrible pollution. They don't want that for their kids. So they'll say, you know, we we've, we've, we've learned that we can create a miracle here, and now we've got to create a miracle socially and environmentally. So they, they get that. I also want to say at the same breath that China's making a lot of mistakes around the world in addition to having this, having this appealing marketing tool that they have. They're, they're also, they've been building projects in many countries, hydroelectric dam like a hydroelectric dam in Ecuador that was supposed to serve roughly half the country. And they built it on a fault line in, in, in pristine rainforest next to an active volcano. And it hasn't ever run at full capacity. In fact, it's generating house. it's got eight gener, huge generators in there. It's filled with cracks. Uh, and yet, and, and so Ecuador is not getting the benefits from it. But they're, but they're stuck with the loan that was used to hire, you, to hire Chinese companies to build that plant. And so they've, they've, they've done a lot of things, and they've, they've, they've pissed off a lot of people, frankly, uh, by bringing in their own laborers to, to build these sites. So they've made a lot of mistakes, too, and I, I, I don't want to gloss over that at all. They have an amazing story to sell. How they follow through on it is a different matter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, then, and, and the final analysis, once again, is that this economic hitman strategy, regardless of who employs it, is killing us. It's, it's killing life on this planet as we know it, and we've got to turn it around.
0: Yeah, you mentioned this is your third version that, you know, the, the first two were just laying the groundwork. And now here you're forcing people to, to come to terms with it, that uh, we've got to do something better. So that just that part of the book is worth the price alone. I, I did want to ask you a few quick questions and bullet point, though, because you're one of the few people that have seemed to have gotten away with this. I think in, you mentioned in the very early days of you, considering to writing, you were paid not to write the book. And I wanted to ask you what your opinion of Julian Assange and Edward Snowden is because, you know, these two have suffered for trying to bring the uh, uh, the problems. You know, Julian Assange especially that, um, you know, he's been releasing uh, emails uh, of war crimes and now he's i don't know if he'll ever get out of jail
2: yeah you know i i, I think that uh, it, one of the big mistakes assange made was to you know expose some people that were still in the business and may have been executed as a result he 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 you know and that created a lot of negativity against him and also the fact that, that he came out and was in a situation where he was very vulnerable. So what you described for me of being paid not to write the book, yes, yeah, so I, I started writing the book after I left that business, and I, I wanted to make it an expose where I described, where I interviewed other people who had, had jobs like mine, and and the and pe- people who were jackals, and the jackals are the people that if we economic hitmen fail, if we can't convince the country, a president or minister of finance, to buy into our deals, they know that, that uh, there are people in the background who are there prepared to overthrow, to, to support coups and even assassinations as we did with Allende in Chile and Mossadegh in Iran and many others that, that we've admitted to. Um, and that's why I started to interview these people. And, and I get, uh, immediately, I get anonymous phone calls threatening my life and that of my infant daughter. At the same time, I was taken out to dinner by the president of Stone and Webster Engineering Corporation, and he said, "Geez, you know, you, you just quit quit your job as chief economist. You have a great resume. We'd like to use it in our proposals. You won't have to do any work for us. Just let us just let us put put your name as a member of our advisory group, and uh, I'm prepared tomorrow to write you a check for half a million dollars." This is in the late '80s. You know, half a million is nothing to sneer at today, but it was worth a lot more then. And so I'm getting exactly what I've done with leaders of countries. I'm offering, I'm being offered, I'm being threatened. My life is being threatened if I don't play the game. And at the same time, I'm being offered a carrot if I do. And you know, I, I took the carrot. Uh, and in my own defense, I, I have to say, I didn't buy fancy cars or big houses or anything. I used it to invest in going back to Latin America and, and trying to help expose the system. And and uh, work with indigenous people to help save their rainforests. Where I'd been a Peace Corps volunteer, but I didn't write that book. I wrote five books on indigenous cultures, and then when 9/11 came along, I went to Ground Zero, and and I knew I had to write the book. And I uh, decided this time I wouldn't tell anybody. I would write it completely in secret. It would be a, a personal, a confession, my own personal story. And so and I figured that was my best insurance policy. Once I got it in the hands of a very good New York agent and he started sending it out to lots of publishers, uh, anybody that might want to see me dead would know that that would just sell a lot more books. So that was my my strategy for for doing this.
0: Yeah, no, I guess my point was that you seem to have gotten away with this, that you were able to lift uh, and let people see inside this dark area where if Edward Snowden tried to do it he had to leave the country and luckily he was granted uh, asylum you know in another country in russia but you know in the case of julian like if you if you tell the truth <laughs> there's that reporter what was his name khashoggi i mean the saudis had him chopped up yeah you know i mean these guys like you say the jackals they, they it's a tough game you know my investigation into some of the started with the, the jfk assassination but you know how could they just shoot the president and then Lyndon Johnson's put in, but it's a whole other topic. I know we only got a little bit of time left. I want to help promote your book. Some of the things I wanted to bring up, which was just the fact that China is trying to, like you mentioned, they've got problems. And even when I talk about Ukraine or or Russia, I'm not waving a flag for Russia. I'm just saying that, you know, I, I've been studying this since 2014 and this coup in Ukraine. And then what's really going to happen? And when, you know, when the thing. Well, it's just almost unimaginable. If, if you if you wrote this down, you go and America's just keep sending money. I mean, the, the funny thing was that Biden was in the Ukraine when he should have been in Ohio, and then Trump shows up there to to say, you know, here I'm I'm concerned about the citizens there. They were calling it America's Chernobyl. I think 70 or 80 cars full of chlorine, deadly. I mean, who knows how many years that that nightmare is going to go on there. Mm a different topic a little bit that you know what your book is available it's very inspiring near the end there's discussions and auxiliary resources and you're trying to influence people to make a better decision you know you outline the problem for those who don't know about it so this is a very good book that you could buy and give to somebody else to to just you know lift the lid and say this is how bad things
2: are well thanks Len I you know and and you know, the, the book goes into a lot more detail. The story I told, was telling about how I was I was bribed and threatened.
0: Oh, I know that. Yeah, yeah. That that was a small yeah. thing. Yeah. I, yeah. I just want to kind of thank you for doing this service because it's the same thing that I think. I think that Julian Assange has done a service and, and the same with Edward Snowden. And somehow they got locked up. So you played your cards a little better and uh, you're still around and, and uh, you're on your third version of the book. And uh, it's a kind of an uncomfortable truth. I mean, uh, there was one book about the JFK assassination. It was called JFK and the Unspeakable. And if people really knew what went on, you you can't even talk about it. And here...
2: That's a very good book. It's an interesting book, yeah. And, you know, I I, I was lucky. Uh, uh, Like, so I think Assange almost exposed too much too soon before he had... You know, it was almost like you don't... If you're a whistleblower, you don't want to threaten... Uh, you just want to get all your ducks in order, and you want to make sure that you don't put yourself in a position where you can be accused of causing. Yeah. Okay. Death. Let Let
0: me ask you this then, and I'm I'm sorry, I'm kind of smiling thinking of about that. When I when I've read your book, and I've seen you know this is the third version of what you put down. So would it be safe to say that you know even more, but then you've been able to write about, but you went right to the line. You said, okay, here's the line. I know I can't. So. Yeah. So there is a, there's even a darker area in there. Well, okay. Yeah. Well, thanks for knowing where the line is that you can walk right up to it and
2: well, well, I think so let me just say that I, I tried I only write about things that I can prove that I well that I have backup information. And I was lucky because you know I, that I did that because uh, when confessions came out I was later I was sued or threatened to be sued by several organizations including Bechtel and the Summer Institute mm-hmm. of Linguistics. And I and my publisher sent the sent these people backup information and they, they, they wanted to sue me for libel and, and retract some of the things I'd said about them. And we sent them a letter and my publisher was very supportive and said, listen, you're trying to blackmail this guy. And if you don't stop, not only will we not do what you're asking, but what we're gonna release another book talking about uh, how you've, you've tried to strong arm him into uh, denying something that, that many, many people support. So I was very careful to only include information that I knew I could back up. There were a lot of things that I know that I know, that I know, but I can't prove them. And I don't include them in the books. I only include things that I know I can prove. And you know, I I was fortunate, Len, too, I think, because I never signed any uh, uh, confidentiality agreements, non-disclosure agreements. I worked for a private consulting firm I didn't work for the CIA like like um, like uh, Snowden, for example. Yeah. So uh, I, I was less vulnerable than some of these other people. And I did play it as smart as I could by making sure I had everything written down and out in the hands of, a, of an agent and, and I could prove it. So that's all there. And, yeah, and, you know, if people, people. Uh, one, one thing I did want to say when you mentioned about buying the book, I, again, if. If if people are interested in giving it to other friends and so forth, I'm I'll, I have a local bookstore here, family-owned bookstore near where I live. If people go onto my website, they can order from that bookstore. They can order from anywhere they want, but I'll go into the bookstore and sign the book, and the, and, and they'll mail it to anyone you want it mailed to within within the United States. I don't, I don't know, but I don't think that includes Canada, unfortunately, at this point. But because it, it, you have to get customs to sign things and so on. But yeah, and, and I would encourage people also, if they go to my website, there's a little box we can put in your your email address and subscribe to my newsletter that comes out once a month and tells you where I'm going to be speaking, what I'm going to be doing. And, you know, I, I'll probably be in some of the towns or cities where some of your listeners are, and I'd love to meet some of them. So it's good to follow my newsletter if you can. <laughs> okay, stuff. let's urge
0: stuff. everyone to go to your website. Speaking about your newsletter, what is a Next event coming up.
2: Well, actually, you know, I'm doing a lot of podcasts and and, and shows now, but and those are not listed there. But um, uh, you know, I, I'm going to be in Europe this summer, so I'm focusing on Europe. I'm speaking in in the Czech Republic and and in England and in Germany and in Switzerland and and several other places. So my job at this point, I think, is to um, spread this word as much as I can. You know, I, I like to think, what if there was a UFO, a fleet of UFOs hovering above us, and we had aliens that were threatening uh, life on this planet, threatening us? We'd all come together, wouldn't we? Chinese, Russians, Americans, and to fight a common enemy, or to solve a common solution. Historically, enemies come together to solve common solutions, to come, solve, solve common problems. All right. Um, And I think it's important that we recognize that we are aliens. It's not humans, but it's our attitude. We've alienated ourselves by saying that we are apart from, not a part of this planet. We've said, you know, we talk about human superiority. We're superior over nature. And climate change is proving otherwise. The pandemic taught us a lesson. So I think it's important if if we can – China, Russia, the United States, we can disagree on many, many di- different issues. But let's all agree that we've got to fight – come together to fight this alienating view of ourselves, of what it means to be successful humans, of constantly ripping up our planet uh, for, for more and more materialistic gains that, that don't really help anybody in the long run. I mean, there's, there are things that we – can help ourselves with, we do need energy, but we can produce that in ways that don't rip up the earth, that don't require fossil fuels, etc. So I think this is a time when we really need to look at what does it mean to be humans, regardless of whether we call ourselves Chinese or Russians or Americans or Canadians, whatever it is, what does it mean to be humans on a planet that we're in the process of impacting in very, very negative ways?
0: Yeah. You really made an impression on me, so thank you for this book. And like I said, I'm going to have to reread. I think a couple of times because it's. Uh, I-, I can't change the whole world in one day, but I will try to make myself a little better and see what I can do by tomorrow.
2: Yeah. So,
0: and you give a number of examples of how to go through those steps. They're all in bullet point, and then some are are in questions. And so um, I-, I recommend the book. I p- think people have heard you on here before, so they know what to expect. But uh, Congratulations, very good job. Just look up to anything that you're doing, so I'm going to have to double-check that I'm... I'm pretty sure that I'm on your mailing list, but um, I thought there was some kind of um, thing in about a week or two from now that uh, I should have...
2: Oh, written yeah, that. yeah, yeah, thank you. I'm glad you mentioned it. Yes, I'm doing a... Uh um, it's a, it's it's a, I, I guess you'd call it a, you know, it's a it's a fireside chat with people. So anybody who who had ordered who ordered the book can, can get that for free. It's also you can subscribe to it for two hundred twenty dollars. But um, yeah, you can you can see it on the on my website. Yes, and that's I think uh, it, it's it's later in March. I can't remember the date right now. But yeah, uh, uh, that'll be live. People can ask questions. We'll spend some time i'll be going over a lot of this so yeah i, I appreciate you bringing that up i'm sorry I, that i neglected to mention that right yeah and i just wanted to say lynn i really appreciate what you do and you know you know we we each can change the world and every day we can work toward doing that by whatever means you know you do it through this podcast um you know and everybody has a way of doing it and i, I i'd like to leave just with the feeling that i think we should all feel very very blessed that we live at this time of serious crises, but also a tremendous opportunity to help our species, the human species, evolve in a new way. This is a time to make that happen.
0: Yeah, I think there was one philosopher who said something, if you can't do the good, just intend the good, because there could be consequences, but you think you're doing the right thing, and but, you know, intend that. Thank you so much for your time today. I'll urge everyone to go and sign up for your, your fireside chat and go to, to your website and I'll make links to all the things we discussed.
2: Thank you so much, Lennon. Keep up your great work. Thank you for what you do. Much appreciated. Right. Okay.
0: Thank you, Mr. Perkins. Thanks. Bye. Good night.
1: You're listening to Black op Radio.
0: Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. In this episode, we are going to be speaking to Dr. David Mantic. He's got a new book out. Welcome Dr. Mantic. Oh, thank you, Len. It's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. Your new book, "The JFK Assassination Decoded," is out. You can pick it up. Uh, evidently, it's on Amazon right now. Right, it is. Okay,
1: At good. All
0: time low price. Very good, very good. Well, we're going to urge people to uh, purchase your book and help support your work. We'll go through the book tonight, and. Off the top, I did want to say that uh, the review, I had an advanced copy, and Jim had one, I guess, and, and at Kennedy's and King, there is a review up just, I think just today, is it? But anyway, you know, yesterday or today, um, um, about JFK assassination decoded. And um, first of all, it's a spectacular book, the hardcover I have. Thank you. Um, yeah. It's really well illustrated. I mean, anytime you're talking about... Um, a skull defect or an x-ray or lining things i mean it's, it's just it's very colorful and there's there's a lot to it and it's a big book as i hate when you get these little ones in fact i often tell people just send me a pdf because sure, i could put it sure. in my phone and it'll read to me like a like um an audiobook yeah i much prefer books. but your book um was very easy in a way to get through and also hard in the other way because it's it's quite large, and so I kind of went through like chapter and you know section at a time, and then put it down, and then waited a couple of days, and then went through the next bit. And so I didn't try to go through it all in one uh, sitting or a day or two or three in a row. It was something that I kind of went through, and then when you're when you're on a topic, as you have labeled these into different topics, like for instance, of uh, X-rays or or windshields or harper fragment or things like that um uh basically it's got to do with medical head wounds that kind of evidence to start which which is your specialty so you do have um the first chapter section is a primer for beginners in which which you go through some of that so um i know this is maybe a little uh Um, lame or better but just for people who maybe aren't familiar do you want to just give me a quick very brief background of what got you interested in the assassination and then we'll get on to this book
1: well it was oliver stone's movie for sure i i was very eager to see it and my wife was eager to go to the theater with me to see it but i'd been looking at this case from a rather remote distance for some years before this. And uh, when I started reading about the reviews, I said, this is really quite a complicated mess. I think I should learn a little about this case before I walk into the movie theater and let Oliver Stone uh, persuade me to some kind of myth. So I spent several months reading about this case and Lifton's book and Crenshaw's book were key to my initiation into this whole morass. So I, I finally went to the theater with my wife, and so i watched the movie JFK one time, and uh, that was fun. I haven't watched it again, though. That was the real catalyst
0: to get you going. It and was. So, yeah, you, you are a doctor, MD, PhD, so as people start talking about medical wounds x-rays um you're well equipped to really discern what they're talking about and recognize where something is uh confusion uh obfuscation or whether they're really giving you the straight goods on something
1: yeah my background in in medicine in particular in radiation oncology for 40 (laughs) years is certainly useful right okay so um
0: Then the first section is gonna be the autopsy X-rays. And this is something that you've given many lectures about and spoken about, but in in this uh, new book, that's what you really start off with. And uh, do you wanna just give us an overview of uh, what's important?
1: Well, it's about the 6.5 millimeter, nearly round object that we see on the frontal X-ray. It lies within JFK's right orbit, that's his eyeball area. It was not seen at the autopsy. It was not discussed at the autopsy, and it's not in the Warren report. And yet in 1968, when the Clark panel reported, this was the most blatant object in their report. So the question is, why didn't the autopsy report describe it and focus on it? After all, the whole purpose of taking x-rays of the skull was to find just such objects. How, how could they totally miss this? In fact, if it really had been there, they would never have missed it. And I know that because my five-year-old daughter and my seven-year-old son were instantly able to spot it on the images in Lifton's book. So something's really wrong here. And by the way, yeah, neither of my children had any radiologic training at ages 5 and 7, but there was no problem for them. So then you began to suspect that this had been added. You know, it must have been it had to be added. There's no way people, you know, dozens of people would have missed this. There was absolutely no discussion of this at the autopsy even though probably several dozen people saw the x-rays posted publicly there at the autopsy in the autopsy suite.
0: Yeah. I think what bothers me or whatever you think, well, the bullet, no matter what all the damage happened, it wouldn't just be 6.5 millimeters then. So yeah, was, what a stroke just, of
1: luck. What they put that there. Yeah, and because so, that's the caliber of uh, Oswald's supposed uh, weapon. Yeah, right. It has to go backwards. Well, if here's the bullet,
0: we got to find a gun that will fire that. Well, we found the gun. Okay. Yeah. And who ordered it? Okay, we got the guy. Um, but also... Um, just in that, that when when the earlier x-rays had, they had the minute fragments, the bullet trails of where all this fragmented lead would have traveled, right? And then yes. to find yeah. it intact on another x-ray there. So it also makes you think that, well, if they've tampered with this, there's almost nothing they wouldn't turn over. Like, they would tamper with everything then.
1: We opened the door to alteration for, for sure, very obviously. It was a very poor, poor attempt. So
0: was that first x-ray the um another catalyst that really started you looking for dishonesty in the Warren Commission?
1: Yes, it, it certainly was because as I said I, I started off pretty early on reading Lifton's book and he has uh, pretty good images of the x-rays in there. So they raised very serious questions right away.
0: And and then as one goes into investigating the Warren commission the report and then the alternate view like if you just watch oliver stone's film saying something else happened and it doesn't have to say what it is but it's definitely not a lone assassin from the sixth floor too many things are not possible
1: and so well yeah for sure like the uh, fragment trail the metal fragment trail across the top of the skull starts at the front of the skull with very tiny fragments there. That means that the bullet that caused that had to enter from the front. There's no way that these many tiny fragments could have gotten all the way at the front of the skull from a bullet that entered way in the back. That's just crazy. Anybody who knows anything about uh, bullet ballistics immediately should understand that.
0: But yet we have, um, you know, the sixth floor museum clinging, to the lone assassin, we have the House Select Committee on Assassinations, the 1978, maybe 77, 78. You know, they still say, well, is we couldn't find evidence of the conspiracy, so I guess we can't rule it out. So we're going to stick with the lone assassin. But then they cling back to this magic bullet.
1: Well, they were forced into that position, uh, weren't they? They could only allow three shots in Dealey Plaza during the allotted time. So there's no way they could allow more than three shots uh, or they'd be immediately stuck with multiple gunmen.
0: Right. You have done a little research on this. You've, you've watched the movie. You've read David Lifton's book. So you're interested, how far does this go? How far does this deception go? And then we get into examinations of uh, the brain, what they say the brain is, how how much could the brain weigh if they were... Um, uh, if they encase it and then they uh, slice it and they look for the, the trail, the, the, the determined direction of, of bullet wounds, nothing, it, it, the whole thing starts to not make sense.
1: Right. The The brain uh, weight that they reported was, was extremely high for a normal male brain. And considering that the pathologist said that two-thirds of the right cerebrum had been blown away, there's no way that their reported brain weight can be correct. So something's grossly inconsistent here. Now, what what are the kind of experiments
0: that you did to determine this fraud in the x-rays? Because it, it seems like there's, there's quite a few photos of the skull, of these defects, and then um, uh, your investigation. And it's just, it's so interesting that it, it's just very well detailed, all the steps you go through. Thought you might mention a few of them right now.
1: Well, it wasn't immediately obvious to me how they could have placed this 6.5 millimeter object on JFK's skull x ray. Uh, it took me a while to sort this out. I had to talk to a colleague, uh, a radiologist, who remembered some of the early days of radiation oncology, and he directed me to a book from the 1960s where it is discussed and shown exactly how to make copies. Of x rays in a dark room, strictly a dark room project. And so I, I finally realized what they had done. They had just uh, done a double exposure on the original x ray in the dark room, with the second exposure being this uh, 6.5 millimeter object. So after the second exposure, then they developed the film, and lo and behold, <laughs> you see this uh, 6.5 millimeter object look, which looks white in the prints which means that it looks like a cross-section of a bullet. So I, I showed in my own darkroom how easy it was to modify uh, emulsion-based x-rays. Now, we're not, not talking about modern digital x-rays. We're talking about actual physical x-rays based on emulsions. And so I, I produced some crazy x-rays one with a uh, superimposed pteranodon from my daughter's plastic tracing kit, which I superimposed on a skull x-ray. So that was my bird brain x-ray. Uh, so I showed that not only was it possible uh, in that era, but I, I could do something close to it even today. So it's, it's highly feasible. And it, it, what's curious is that none of the government investigating bodies even thought about this. It's hard to believe that they were so, so dense, so opaque, that they didn't even think about this possibility, but that's, that's the fact. They had never actually been in the darkroom making copies of X-rays, so they had no idea that this was feasible. Then, then we also get into the idea
0: of how much of the real skull was damaged and who saw what damage at uh, Parkland and then at Bethesda. When people talk about seeing cerebellum or, you know, that area of the brain, I mean, a a large chunk of the skull would have to be missing.
1: Yeah, of course, uh, both the Parkland and Bethesda witnesses were quite consistent in reporting a large defect or hole at the back of the right side of the head, uh, variously described as the size of an orange or a baseball or, or a grapefruit at most, but they were very consistent in locating it, and you can see that in photographs of these witnesses placing their hands on the back of their heads, and that image is in the, in the book, uh, thanks to Robert Groden's work. So th- they, were, they were greatly consistent, and even John Ebersole, the radiologist, the only radiologist at the autopsy, uh, told me the same thing. And he saw the same hole at the back of JFK's head on the right side. And he saw the x-rays that night. And so he's, he's telling me the same story. There's no problem uh, with the x-rays uh, showing that, that kind of defect. So all the professional witnesses, especially the doctors, agreed that there was a big hole at the rear of the head on the right side. That strongly suggests a shot from the front, of course. It's pretty hard to explain otherwise. I've seen a poster with the different people who, with their
0: hand, describe where the wound was in the back, and you see about twenty different people all holding their
1: hand open, towards the back, and uh, you're probably familiar with that poster. But and there's a wonderful documentary called "The Parkland Doctors," produced in 2018, in an interview with a fair number of them sitting around in a circle and discussing their memories of JFK's body at Parkland Hospital. And if your audience is interested in what the the actual doctors saw and recall, this is a wonderful documentary to see. So the Parkland doctors, and and they pretty clearly um, admitted that what they saw in the actual autopsy photographs is not at all consistent with what they saw in Parkland. So that suggests that some of the autopsy photographs were also altered in order to cover up that big hole at the rear. Right. Well, there's
0: a, a famous quote I remember when when somebody's showing these doctors these photographs and one of the guys says, well, who washed his hair?
1: You yes, know. of
0: course. And, right. Of course. And then you look for the little tiny hole and they're trying to say, oh, can you see this little 6.5 hole and then um when you get into x-rays, I mean, there's just, like you mentioned, the size of a grapefruit. Things are missing, and, you know, it just seems to go, uh, I mean, I just can't believe there's still people who support the Warren Commission, but uh, regardless. Okay, well, the next chapter you have is talking about the masquerade at the museum. This is the sixth floor museum, and, and I've been... uh I've been disgusted with them, uh, I think, for, since the days of Gary Mack and, and way back when. Yes, and, uh, yeah. I even have a page somewhere saying, uh, boycott the Sixth Floor Museum. Don't give them your money because it's just a total fraud. It's not really a museum. I've, I've called it an ad nauseum. But people have written in over the years to say, well, I went there. I paid my 10 or 20 bucks, whatever it is. And I can't believe how disappointed I was as well. I thought maybe that you were exaggerating, but it is a dog and pony show. It's a fraud. Do
1: you well, want to get anybody? Yeah, but anybody interested in the uh, JFK case really should go there and and view all the evidence that they have. They have quite a good collection of materials. So I enjoyed my visit there. In fact, when I went to check in, I I mentioned at the counter that I I was an acquaintance of uh, Gary Mack, and they said, Oh, well, you you just come in then. You don't have to pay any admission. So <laughs> that was fine. <laughs> oh, oh, great yeah
0: and and that's a whole other story in itself the uh the turning of Gary Mack yes um from you know interested citizen honest researcher, and then uh you just um uh mouthpiece for that um well we'll get by that, but did you have anything else you wanted to add about the museum so you're you're telling me that you enjoyed your time there I did okay, I did. well, fair enough, you know, I haven't been, so I'll leave it at that oh my, you haven't. No, well, because I I just, you you know, I said to somebody, I said, I've seen this before. They took down the, you know, the the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Uh, Somebody took all the bricks apart and then they they put them back together and it's like a traveling show and you can go see the the St. Valentine's Day Massacre wall. And it's like, well, why would you want to do that? Right. And so when you, when you think, especially after 2013, I mean, I was going to go to Dealey Plaza then I'd been considering it and. I just the city doesn't want you. The sixth floor is uh doing everything to uh uh um arrest dissuade Robert Groden from even being there. It, it's just you know why should I spend my tourism dollars there at all? I mean, I went to Pittsburgh, no trouble for uh you know the fiftieth anniversary, and that was just worth it Just a lot of people researchers. Not, you know, you might not get along with everybody. There was McAdams was still alive then, and I think Max Holland and a few other people you wouldn't agree with, but but they were there. And, uh, yeah, that has my fasc- fascination. I understand there'll be, a, from Ben Weck, there'll be another 60th
1: this year. Yeah, so we'll we'll see you there, I trust. Yeah,
0: that's something I would go to rather than going down to, to uh, see the Sixth Floor Museum. Let's leave it at that. Right. Okay. But when we mentioned this, things you don't get along with, then came Reclaiming History by Vincent Bugliosi. And you right. go through that. I think it's chapter three or four. But do you want to speak about his
1: contributions to the case? Well, actually, I wrote two critiques of Vincent. Uh, the first one, of course, was about JFK, but there's a second one in the book, too, about his <laughs> very amateurish venture into agnosticism and atheism, which I very much enjoyed critiquing him on because he was so woefully uninformed, it was hilarious. Um, but the point is that Vince is not a scientist. He he admitted that he didn't even take physics in high school, so he, did, he involves himself in this uh, tremendously uh, complicated scientific case. He just constantly walks himself into trouble so Vince, uh, I I wrote a very negative review, as, as you know, and Vince read that review and he called me up and he regaled me for an hour on the telephone about lots of things, mostly related to JFK. But somewhere in the conversation, he told me that he had so many positive reviews of his book that he didn't even bother calling any other reviewer and that I was the only reviewer he ever called. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, I wonder how many of his paid friends
0: wrote those reviews, too. I don't know. Yeah. I think there's even some skepticism about how much he wrote of that book.
1: Uh, Yeah, it's pretty clear that he had a lot of help. In fact, I I, even
0: go further. Um, Yes. Somebody wrote to me that, you know, he was famous for Helter Skelter, and he wrote now that I see what a fraud Vince is in this case, it's making me have second thoughts about the Charles Manson case. Oh, have you read the books about that case that where he is very severely criticized? Yes, and only now have people yeah. come out to yeah. talk about what maybe was really going on with that. Yeah. And he, y- yeah, yeah exactly. you know, so there's another guy like Gary Mack or Bugliosi that – just are uh, all full of hot air and bluster. And then when you start asking him about the facts, uh, you know, I think his book started off with, I won't do any name calling or doing anything like that. And then that's all he starts doing, you know?
1: Yeah, he to- totally contradicted himself very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, um, he, he called uh, our initial books on the JFK case, virtually some of the only truly scientific books on the whole subject. But then he would not address um, ten to twelve very serious, hardcore items that I put to him. He he just would not do it. He he knew he couldn't, so it was better off for him not to say anything. Right. So that was his that was his approach. You know the poverty of
0: that. I mean, you you can't make up. Uh, you can't come to the debate, right? No. Armed. You know he he just said uh, it, it's um it reminds me of another um book oswald's tale right and it was like somebody must have got a lot of money just to go and keep writing this why how is it someone has another book saying the Warren commission was right in spite of what we've learned 60 years later uh who's funding this you know because it was like with Gerald posner you got the real idea that there was some money behind him
1: you know well i did anyway I, i think you're right sure it's hard to avoid that Anyway, there was there was no money behind my efforts. You know, let's make that clear.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. I mean, what I like is if somebody has a documentary or something and they're working on it, you say, "Okay, show me what you have." And you know, often in your gut, you say, "Okay, I'm I understand this. I believe this." And even if it turns out you could be wrong, I I, I can see this point of view. Like, for instance, let's talking about. Um, how many shots? You know, somebody says only one shot hit the head. And then you go, well, look, it would have to be, you know, here's my view of why there's three. And then you can see, and if they find the Harper fragment, how many feet away it must have been, or yes. who knows where, it, how high, you know, just then you start to think, well, I, I guess it really couldn't have just been one. And then you join in the discussion, the debate. I mean, one discussion is, is that Lee Oswald in the doorway? You know, there's... um. Uh, Billy Lovelady or, you know, and, they, and you know, the photographs are, you know, it, it looks like Lee Oswald, but it could be Lovelady. And then, you know, that's just among. But the big picture is, you know, Kennedy was shot, removed from office. Lyndon Johnson went in. The Vietnam War went back on full and the power that was behind that kept it in there. And often I say to people, they ask me what happened to JFK. I'll say his he was removed by his enemies if you want to understand further study whose enemies were and then you get to that um but you get these people like the bugliosi's and the sixth floor museum just kind of waving the flag uh saying that oh it's a lone gunman uh you know there's a magic bullet i know it doesn't make too much sense but trust us go back to sleep you know well said well said oh okay so um that you had a couple of chapters here with doubts about bugliosi and uh the reclaiming history i mean uh you know, even the fact that uh, I still kind of hold it against Tom Hanks for taking part in that reclaiming Parkland. Oh, I mean, sure. Yeah. You know, like it's one thing to say we have, we're not quite sure exactly what happened, but to keep waving the flag of a lone assassin. And then and then you get into Officer Tippett and you find, well, he can't be here. And then you get further into the, you know, saying, well, well who was Oswald? And then was he being impersonated? And how could he be in New Orleans? How could he be, in, you know, Dallas? How could he be in Mexico City? These different times, um, you know, what was he doing it in the Soviet Union? And you get these footprints of intelligence all over the place. Not um, a Marxist, or uh, right, you know,
1: absolutely right.
0: Uh, and um, okay, well. Going through the book a little further, you talk about Sherry Feaster, who's passed away. She had a book, Enemy of the Truth: Myths, Forensics, and the Kennedy Assassination. And she is someone that was, um, I think, having the single gunshot to the head.
1: Yeah, that, that's right. She believed in just one shot to the head. So in that sense, she's very much like the Warren Commission. Uh, but she uh, disagreed with them on the direction of the shot, of course. She was a pretty serious critic of the Warren Commission. I, I don't really know why she ended up with just one shot to the head, and that's the that's reason I take her to task pretty seriously in my review, because that cannot possibly be right.
0: So there you go. You have to have two scholars going back and forth on something. I remember a great quote from Albert Einstein. Somebody said to him, he said, listen, we have uh, 200 uh, scientists have signed this petition saying that your theory of relativity can't be right and he said well why would there need to be 200 if just one guy was correct that would be it well said well said <laughs> yeah so so here's the same thing you know we'll will read your book people look through your work and see what you have Com- you know it's really a shame that sherry Feaster has passed away that you know can't speak up for that but you know still she wrote about it and there is one researcher's view um i think in the idea that we may not agree, or we may not agree with her. I at least thought of her as someone who was doing uh, legitimate research. She here's her story. It's the same thing with David Lifton. Sometimes people say, "Well, I can't really see how there could be an autopsy or surgery on the plane there." You know, here's there's his research. Let it stand, go over it, and then sometimes you go, "I I have to," I begrudgingly agree that there's something's. Happen here something's you know in between these two places and the fact actually we go back here to the the fbi the justice department every institution failed in this case that if they were really trying to solve the case on behalf of american people they everyone failed and it's as if that not everyone was in on the plan to remove president kennedy but as soon as it happened It seemed that everybody was on board. Don't worry. We'll cover this up. We'll do our part. We'll, you know, uh, and that's my kind of uh, observation of
1: American justice. Well, most of the experts who were consulted were either direct government employees or had some financial stake on funds from the government. So they were strongly beholden to the official government view. It would have been very difficult, maybe even dangerous for them to depart very much from the Warren Commission conclusions. Now, in your book, there is collections
0: and, and you know, I don't want to call them chapters, but large chunks of, of articles and things you have um, read before, and, uh, you know, especially on Bugliosi, but the one I want to bring up right now is the one on how to think like John McAdams, because oh, yes. he yes. was somebody that was like that, um, stubborn in his commitment to the to the one set of facts regardless of the evidence you know so he called them factoids and he just went on and on about how it was lee oswald and a lone gunman in spite of what you find and you wrote to him i mean you're you're right the title is like you have to think a certain way to even try to uh wave that flag of a single of the lone gunman the magic bullet i mean it's uh, I made a joke I said I wonder how these people even get a driver's license with this kind
1: of logic. For sure. Well, uh, what I found striking is that this was a pretty damning review I I wrote with the title How to Think Like John McAdams, but but he never responded to it. Uh, can you imagine? He had he had many many years to respond. He never said one thing in response to this. I I found that quite striking. Well,
0: that says he didn't have a leg to stand on and, or, and he was, uh, he responded to almost everything else on the internet. He was quite the, uh, troll.
1: Yeah. But he never, he never trolled me or my critique. Well, I
0: got banned from one of his forums because he started spouting off all this stuff. And so I, I said, I replied something to like this. Well, it's John McAdams. Consider the source. (laughs) That was the last time I was allowed to post there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, unceremoniously <laughs> <and tough.
1: laughs> you were fired
0: but you know that was the thing I mean like look if if you have written something okay Dr. Mantic okay let's see what he's got to say you know even David Lifton is what, what he got to say I you know and many people you may or may not agree with everything on Um classic example is John Armstrong but you read it and you go yeah this guy has facts and figures and dates now I May or may not con- agree with the conclusion, but the the stuff he's digging up, and when I look through your um you know just forensic evidence x-rays and 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 your discussion of how these x-rays are made and how uh photographers you know the photographs can't be real because of this i mean uh staff photographers called in they said, well, that's not my film. I don't use that kind of film, right, yes, so yes. you get this um uh, just getting off the book for one moment, you were on uh, you're featured with Oliver Stone. Do you want to discuss any, anything there with that?
1: Well, one thing I have to correct in my record, apparently, is I said that the critical initials on the magic bullet were, were missing. But uh, NIST, a government organization, took some close-up photographs of that later, and they did show that the critical initials were there. So I, I did make a mistake. So I'm not perfect either. So I'm I'm willing to admit that. Although I'd love for somebody to go back and actually eyeball this this object just to make final confirmation.
0: Oh, I was just going to ask you, like, how do you keep in touch with Oliver and his work and his in his, uh, you know, it, it seems like uh, it was a 30th year anniversary from from his um, first movie.
1: Well, um, I don't have a direct line to Oliver. I basically communicate through Jim Diogenio, who's very close to him.
0: Well, he was the writer of of this, right?
1: Yeah, Jim was responsible for the script.
0: Right, right. All right, then. So I just thought maybe uh, if there was any other stories of you meet or you keep in touch with other researchers, because you seem to have mentioned fondly Dr. Surer and his… Sure. Sure, various views. So, is that somebody that you keep in touch with more often?
1: Oh yeah, very, very close to Cyril. Uh, ever since I began this project, he he attended the archives with me when when I first went to look at the JFK artifacts, including the X-rays and photographs. And um, uh, he was very, very important in my getting involved in this case. So I'm always grateful to him for that. Right, and he is
0: somebody else. It must be rare that would know exactly when you're talking about what to look for in x-rays or sure. the forgery of an x-ray what to look for and you know he was the one of the the uh, I think the lone dissenting doctor in uh, 1978
1: what when he yeah.
0: said, you know you just can't say that this this is one thing right so
1: he was, he was the lone dissenter and he was one of the few experts who did not have strong ties to government money
0: yeah yeah unfortunately we're after years later finding out these connections so you've been a critic, you've been studying the case. What made you decide to wrap all this stuff up together into
1: a book? It just happened in uh, 2022, I think a year ago. Uh, yeah, I, I worked on assembling this over about a year. I, I think a lot of friends have suggested that I put this all together because I've written so many articles and a lot of people aren't aware of of how many there are. So I thought it was only fair to put my best articles together in one book, so it would be accessible to people. So I I finally got around to it. The problem, of course, is that there's repetition uh, from one article to another because some of the same issues come up. And uh, that's one of the criticisms I've had, and it's a fair criticism. But to, to change that would have meant either omitting the original articles or changing the original articles. So I didn't see that as an option either.
0: Oh, uh, that wasn't a problem for me because I thought you were reinforcing something that was important. So when I read well, it a second
1: time, I go yeah. right. I do know that, this, but um, that's that's very kind of you to say, and I I hope that would be the case for many readers. It Doesn't hurt to emphasize a point, but for some people it's a little too much, and uh, so so for that I apologize for those folks. But I didn't see any easy way around that. Right now, uh, you you mentioned uh, somebody who's
0: written this. Um, I think I don't know if I should say scathing, but it's a, a rebuking cast Sunstein you know what you talk about conspiracy theories oh yeah everybody right, so, right. finds under every rock they think everything is a conspiracy yeah and I don't have that opinion at all. I'm interested in a topic and I'll look into it to see the both sides and then I start weighing and using some judgment and in many cases would interest you is there's something wrong like you you might let's say let's say nine eleven when I see Building 7 fall, I think there's something wrong there. That's a controlled demolition, no matter what happened that day. And then if you yeah, go, well, course. if that's a controlled, let's look back at Building 1 and 2. Wait a minute. And then you, then from there, you can say, well, there's something that doesn't add up here. And then however long in time you want to spend on that. I mean, it's similar with Bobby Kennedy's assassination. Sir oh, An yeah. in jail, when you say, well, but Thomas Noguchi says the gunshots were like, they had powder burns, zero yeah. to
1: two inches maybe. Behind his, behind his yeah. ear, and Searhan yeah. was in front of him, yeah. so you cannot connect those two things. Right. They don't fit. Now, and by the way, that information did not get into the trial. It was deliberately kept out of his trial. Yeah,
0: right. So depending on how long you have in an interest, but I think for this idea that people like, like Cass Sunstein are writing about conspiracy theorists, it's, it's meant to paint everybody with a brush that we're looking for Bigfoot or something you know yeah, and right. that isn't the case in, in you know I, I often if somebody pushes me I say oh, well I'm doing political research you know I'm, I'm investigating uh, something and it's it's political in nature and uh, in, the, in the case of uh, John F. Kennedy it's the removal of a president and how uh, the press and any legal system went along with it I mean as soon as uh, Jack Ruby was dead they just kind of you know, clapped their hands. So, okay, well, enough of that, and uh, it's on to the next thing. So sixty years ago, it's amazing. Right. So your book now, all these different essays are all uh, together in one place, and as well, um, it's about is it about four hundred pages? The main book.
1: The actual book is a rather large volume in yeah. terms of the paper size. And it's over uh, 500 pages altogether. Right. But um, there is another one, which uh,
0: is about 100 pages. It's kind of attacked onto the end of the book. Um,
1: oh, my ebook, book right. right. It's, it's finally in print now for the first time.
0: Right, right. So um, saying that, I just wanted to say, yeah, well, anyway, 500 pages total. but. But the first section of the book and then you get your appendices and uh, list of figures and, and that. And then um, so do you want to talk about, I think, the failings of Cass Sunstein and things like that when they're giving these critiques of people who are, have an interest in studying the, uh, this JFK assassination in particular?
1: Cass uh, Sunstein was the administrator in the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs and uh he was his name was even bandied about as a possible nominee for the Supreme Court, so he was thought of very highly in the Obama administration. So that's one reason I took offense at his really ridiculous essay. He throughout his essay failed to make a distinction between uh true conspiracies and false conspiracies i I can't imagine writing an article of of such import and failing to make that distinction. But he, he never did. It was like his mind was totally closed to the possibility of true conspiracies. Uh, Is just unbelievable. So I, I, took, I took him to task on a few other things as well. His grasp of science seems to be very, very limited. He's a lawyer, so that's not surprising. He's in the same basket as, as Bugliosi on that score
0: okay so i think then the remaining area of the book is uh, two two big chunks where you do an investigation of the harper fragment and where it would be and then also the windshield and we can get right. into um, doug weldon and george whitaker so first of all let's just tackle the harper fragment for someone who's not familiar with it there was a, a piece of skull found the
1: next day a boy and he took it to his dad his uncle oh uncle. right was he a forensic his uncle was a pathologist at the local methodist hospital okay so he recognized that as well this is skull and yeah and not only that he recognized that it was from the occiput the guy who found it was billy harper who at that time was a pre-med student and so that's why it's always been called the harper fragment right named after the the finder Uh, but not only did his uncle Uh, Dr. Harper uh, proclaimed that it was from the occiput, but two of his pathology colleagues also did. And sometime later, I did a telephone interview with some colleagues with Dr. uh, Notable, who was one of those three pathologists, and he had not changed his opinion in all those years. And he even described a uh, dark smear on one edge of the Harper fragment, which he considered to be a result of a bullet entry. And I discussed that at some length in in this uh, e-book, which is at the very end of this whole volume. Well,
0: it's very interesting because there was a bit of a debate of where this bone fit. But at any rate, it's a sizable chunk. And thank goodness they took a picture of it.
1: Yes, and the FBI took some really high resolution images as well which i published in my book i i I don't know if they've been i don't think they've been published in this quality in any other book so if you want to see what they really look like uh well it's in the book
0: yeah i was impressed on the quality of of those pictures as well there's a few you've really good jogged my memory here there's a few times there's a picture or two I i hadn't seen that before i I, um, i didn't make a note but that was one of the things that Because I was under the impression that the Harper fragment's been lost now.
1: It is. It is. It disappeared fairly promptly after the assassination. Right. I think it was last seen in the hands of uh, Kennedy's uh, physician.
0: Yeah. And then also a chunk of curb was cut out where a a bullet had hit and maybe bounced up and hit tag. And they cut that chunk out and then they've lost that as well.
1: Yeah. They they like to lose the critical pieces of evidence. I don't know if it's... Is deliberate or not. I, I, it's hard to believe they're that incompetent.
0: Well, do you want to
1: briefly just discuss the
0: importance of this Harper fragment? This fragment?
1: Well, we, we know from the witnesses that there was a big hole in the back of Kennedy's head on the right side. And if you grant that, it's almost inevitable then that you have to admit that there was a frontal shot that caused this big hole. And we know that John Ebersole, the radiologist at the autopsy, concurred with that. So the question is, where did this Harper bone fragment fit? And it's about, as so I remember, 7 by 10 centimeters or so. So it's reasonably sizable. And in my book, I, I, I demonstrate with diagrams exactly where I think it was from. And, the, and that conclusion is based on, on the x-rays as well as the witnesses. It's Everything fits. And so if you conclude that the Harper fragment came from the uh, back of the head, mostly on the right side, um, but a little from the left side as well, and and that it came from the occiput, the back of the head, that just confirms everything the witnesses said. And it actually confirms what what we find on the x-rays as well. So then we're left with explaining why there would be a big hole in the back of the head if it came from a shot from the rear. That makes no sense. Well,
0: the observation I made from looking at this almost triangular piece of bone was that if it's true that three shots happened at once, that would explain how this odd size could have been blown right out of its hand. Like if you had one, I wouldn't expect that kind of fragment to come out from just a single bullet. What's your observation? Yeah,
1: I, I think that's right. Most likely, the first shot to the head came from the rear and deposited that smear on one edge of the Harper fragment. And then only later was it blown out by a shot from the front. After all, this is just common sense. How do you get a, a smear from a bullet on a piece of bone unless that shot came before the frontal shot that blew that piece of bone out? so the shots were probably very closely spaced we we don't really know the time interval because we can't trust the zapruder film as a clock but uh they were i would agree pretty closely spaced right and
0: on shot from the th- rear had to come first and then uh, reporters on the spot said they were the sounds of automatic weapons fire were heard so yes. that is you yes. know, shots on top of each other right uh yeah. Not just one two Three, you would have never assumed that was automatic weapons, right? But you know, right. something like yeah. that, right?
1: And, and even even the Secret Service men in the in the JFK limousine uh, reported a flurry of shots. Uh, that's something they said multiple times. And one of the Secret Service men even reported a a, a shot through the windshield, which is quite striking.
0: Yeah, uh, you go. You, I think it's not a whole chapter on that. Um, yes, we can yes. get into that because. Um, Doug Weldon, a uh, researcher, was it his neighbor George Whitaker? No, they
1: met by chance oh, uh, in okay. Michigan. Yeah, right, they were both in chance. Michigan. They met in ch- by chance. Weldon was a an attorney in Michigan, and the story he told me was that they they met through a common barber shop of all things. Just just a random encounter. And at first, uh, Whitaker would not let his name be used, and he only granted release of his name just before or at about the time he died. But uh, Doug Weldon was able to interview him at uh, great length, and a lot of that is reported in my book as well, because it's uh, critical to the whole issue of a shot through the windshield.
0: Or, Or any damage to the windshield. I mean, you start counting bullets, and you say, okay, well, what bullet made that defect? Um, yes um, yes and then you can argue about um uh is there like that's one shot i never saw before i mean evidently if i recall um well I, i'll leave that alone but there's a shot of the windshield yeah it's a commission exhibit i had never seen that photograph before
1: yeah yeah that's pretty important yeah because it probably relates to the injury uh to the front of jfk's neck so-called th- throat injury it, right. it was probably not caused by the bullet, but rather by a piece of glass that was ejected when the bullet hit the windshield. And
0: there's something we'll never know. Is this um, a bullet, a fragment out of a bullet? Is it glass? I mean, and then you start looking, well, at what directions? I mean, do these, you know, line up? And, and then, then the, the discussion is on, well, who was shooting from where?
1: Well, it wasn't a bullet fragment because we don't see that fragment, in, that metal fragment in the x-rays. But if it was a glass fragment, of course, it would escape detection in the x-rays, and it would also escape the vision of the pathologist, most likely, because it wasn't very large.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's a, you know, uh, legitimate uh, explanation. Um, But it's so interesting, uh, just this whole thing that that George Whitaker, for anybody who doesn't know, he worked at the Ford Motor Company and was called in to to change this windshield. Yeah, he was. Um, And... Mm -hmm. um, Um. At least he confided in Doug Weldon, and then the stipulation was, "I'll tell you my story, but don't print it until I've passed away." Yes. And then I think because he he was so afraid. Yeah. Of the repercussions
1: of letting his name be known.
0: Yeah. And that's something that uh, people have said before. Well, why didn't somebody speak up or talk? You know, how many things don't we know about? And some people were legitimately concerned that I saw something I shouldn't talk about, and I'm not going to talk about it. Uh, Right. But you know, here's my story then. And, uh, you know, after I pass away, you can uh, mention it, right? I think, did you write that he did even write down a little more than talking to Doug just before he did pass away? Yeah,
1: he he wrote a final memo, which appears in my book. Right, right. He, that's, he describes his uh, observations and his experience. Right.
0: And uh, just that alone is just, you know, worth reading and examining. Say either you, uh, you're going to accept that as um you know um just kind of evidence after the fact just like well here's what old man say says it's kind of anecdotal um how are we going to prove you know he did work there um, was it like 40 years i mean he, he yeah i i think that's what he said yeah so uh that in itself is interesting um just you know your section on the harper fragment and and george Whitaker jr i think it was June. yes and um and even Doug Weldon, I've spoken to Doug Weldon over the years, just about that, uh, you know, back in, well, um, some time ago. But these are interesting stories, even, you know, even if they're anecdotal. It's like, well, here's the guy who says, he says this, and he was there. Now, are you going to accept it
1: or not, right? Well, Doug would be thrilled that we have a second witness now who backs up what Whitaker said. Robert Harrison worked uh, in that same facility. And he also saw a bullet hole in the windshield that came from the front. So we now we have two witnesses. Uh, that's uh, pretty impressive in my book.
0: Yeah. Uh, just, geez, is that a page, is that an 88? Anyway, I, I think on Jim D'Eugenio's, uh review of your book, he, he mentions the page number. He, he has a couple of active links in that. That's good, where he, um, uh, some of the things that I wasn't aware of as well, I clicked on that link and I got to read that or different uh, views, or different, um, where was one that you had, uh, anyway, people that you recommended, you know, here's here's a good article, and I started right. getting into there, right, so yes, the review of the JFK assassination decoded Monday, the 27th of February, so we just, his review is just released, and um, your book, you have a website now, let's just mention that, where people yes. can find out more,
1: yeah, the Mantic View, right,
0: Okay, I'll make a link to that as well in the show notes. Thank you. Um, so, the the book, you know, it's almost about <laughs> an inch and a half, two inches kind of thing. It's a it's a big book if you get the hard copy, which is I recommend because it was easy for me to to go through sections and then put it down and and again I just um, because of my eyesight and aging, you know, uh, I just don't like little pocket books anymore.
1: Well, there's a Kindle version that sells for less than $10, but I, I really strongly recommend the hardcover, especially now that its price has been really dropped. Right. Very good. You see, you've
0: gone through, um, the we, I think we were just talking about uh, the J, the JFK limousine. Right. And then I guess the final one is the, uh, on your ebook, which is about the JFK's head, wounds and yes. your view. And the
1: Harper Fragment, too, is a big uh,
0: feature in that. Ebook, right and that's 100 pages there so even if, right. you, if you cut them up to 50 50 uh there's it's worth, yeah so this is a you know the um the doctromantic reader because everything you have is in here and uh <clears throat> it, it it's just it's well done it's well done as well
1: thank you thank you
0: yeah um well i don't know what more we should do tonight to help um encourage people to purchase your book and go through it. Um, I guess you can also read Jim Eugenio's review and make another uh,
1: we'll right. make link a, to that. That's a good starting point. And, and accompanying his review is the second review by Jerome Corsi. So you've got two there on the same site. Right. Uh, Kennedy, Kennedy's and King. Right.
0: Okay. Well, well before we wrap up then, Is there anything you wanted to really talk about about the book that I didn't get to yet?
1: Well, I would emphasize that it's full of color illustrations like no other book in recent history. So if you want to see what many of these critical images look like in full color, this is the place to look.
0: Yeah, like it's just for instance, the FBI photographs of the Harper fragment are so clear. I hadn't seen them before. There are some logs you have in here. There is that picture of the windshield removed from the car that I had never seen before. There are, and then there's a lot of different articles and, and short little articles about different researchers that you have uh, done some work together with, but mostly this is a lifetime of, of research, and if anybody wants to know more about Dr. David Mantic and your your investigation, it seems to be all in one place. Well, thank
1: goodness. Now I can relax, right? Yeah. Well, what, are you on to anything next, or will you? Yes, uh, but that's not for public information yet.
0: Okay, damn it. Usually, that's I, <laughs> okay. I, well, before I talk to somebody, I'll pick up the phone and say, look, is there anything don't don't bring up? And people will say, well, oh, I've, I've got this new book I'm working on. Please don't bring that up yet, right? I'm not ready. <laughs> and uh, okay. that's what I should have asked you about. But um, sorry about that. But so you mentioned see You You will be speaking with dr cyril wecht and ben wecht in in uh, i uh, i don't
1: i don't have a program yet i don't think that's even been arranged right but Uh i expect that i will be in attendance at the very least yeah
0: yeah I, i i found the the last one in 2013 just to be so worth it just valuable and worth it and as opposed to uh that's why i say like going to dallas to the um just to visit the sixth floor museum
1: is um lucky you got in for free. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> yes. Right. And remember this, uh, after the 60th anniversary meeting, we may never see a 70th anniversary meeting. We may lose too many people by then. So this may be the last big meeting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A considerable amount of people have passed away. I know when I, I've i been doing this for quite a while and on my 1000th show, I decided we'll all, I'll have you know, pe- various people that I've had on before just to talk about over a thousand shows, the different interviews, and over 50 people had passed away from that. Yeah, interview. without
1: w- without your permission.
0: <laughs> no, but, you know, the John Judge, the Mark Lane, the, you, you, you go oh, Doug they, Weldon. Right, you know, there's just so many Sherry, people. Sherry Feaster, yeah. John McAdams. Yeah, okay. So, well, we'll leave it at that, but you're right, I mean... I'm not sure how old Dr. Cyril Wecht is right now, but he's getting up there, so. He is about 92. Yeah, goodness. And uh, I think you probably would count on Ben Wecht to, uh, to carry on with something once, once you know, every important anniversary. But, of course, people are trying to sue to get more documents released, but it's really an uphill battle. And I think if you come away with the conclusion that the government was in on this, or there. are complicit on the cover-up that's why th- these documents will never be released or they will fight tooth and nail to the veteran i mean if they've been fighting for 60 years not to release information then you know they're covering up something
1: or may they get they may get lost in the process
0: yeah but i'm just lost the- in
1: quotation marks
0: right but just the fact that they would have information about this crime and would be not willing uh, 20 years ago what was it after the the recommendations of the AARB were that the stuff should be released and it was to be 25 years after the fact right was that 1994 yeah. And then 25 years after the fact, I mean, anyway, the whole the whole thing is an embarrassment. I mean, I'm sure other people, if you told someone that this happened in uh, South America or in Russia, you'd, of course they killed him and they're covering it up, right? Yeah. But yes, in America, they go, well, maybe they just need more time. Or what was Biden? He said, oh, due to COVID, nobody's been allowed to go in the records." So, you know, I, it's pathetic, really. But records are too dangerous to go into during COVID, yes. Oh, God is there anything that you might be pleasantly surprised to find in the records that you would be looking for?
1: I think Jeff Morley would be a good person to put that question to. Very
0: good. Yeah. I spoke to him a little while ago and I I have to talk to him again. He, he's written a few books that he wants to talk about. So very good. I will bring that up with him. I just thought in case you said, yeah, if they had the Harper fragment, we could do some kind of a, Oh my! That would be really amazing. Neutron activation on that lead, and then you know, compare that to Commission Exhibit 399, and and you know, it would just, uh, it would be a, just another nail in the coffin of saying why this whole thing is uh, a fraud. And that's kind of the idea when I made my short video series. It was called 50 Reasons for 50 Years. Just every yes. one it was like another instance. Like this couldn't be true. This can't be true. And all right, Dr. Mantic. Thank you so much pleasure. for taking time to talk to me. It's a, pleasure. a good, You're yeah. doing great
1: work and you carry on. Right.
0: And good luck. We're going to help get interest in this book. People read the reviews, go to Amazon and decide if it's something you want to get. But as books go, because of its size, large print and like you mentioned, color photographs, I guess I didn't say color so much, but there's there's just so many that it was kind of a nice surprise.
1: Well, that's very nice of you. One last comment, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah, sure. I changed the name of the book after some vigorous prodding from friends. So the initial reviews are not on the Amazon website, but they are on my personal website, The Mantic View. So if you want to see the initial reviews, you have to go to my website. Right. Well, it's the same cover. It's the same book with a different title. Right.
0: And uh, JFK Assassination Decoded. The other one was uh jfk assassination uh paradoxes and and then it, you know it did it says essays and reviews of the head wounds and i think everybody will know what we're, you're going to be talking about this at least this interview will help people know exactly what's in that book and uh and hope we can uh, get a few people to uh to support your good work thank you very much len it's a pleasure all right thank you so much again anytime something is new give me an email send me an email Will do. All right. Thank you so much. Good night. So long.